Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, our columnist Jason Zweig is here. He is going to defend his gold as a pet rock fury. And also on a day when the S&P 500 hits a new record, stock market, it looks expensive by some measures, but by some other measures, not as expensive as you might think. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast on this Monday in July. Paul Vini, Stephen Grosser in the studio with our friends Jason Zweig, who writes our column, The Intelligent Investor, and Ben Eisen, part of our Money Beat team here. We'll have Aaron, Aaron Kurloff will be coming up uh, in a few minutes, too. We're going to talk about uh, stock market and valuations. But first, the reason we wanted to have the great Jason Zweig in here was, was just to have you here, Jason. We're impressed that you would come into the studio for a few minutes to to spend time with us. Just hanging out with the uh, common folk, Paul. <laughs> and, and what I do every day. Yeah. Yes, you do, Grocer. It's, I know it's hard for you to deign to bring yourself the down. To our, uh, yes, yes. Somebody has to keep us in control here. Uh, we wanted to talk about your column, Jason, in which you you took on the very difficult and and important critical question of. Are you a moron? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm not making that up either. You you, you offered that up in the column. That's correct. Why and did you uh, offer that up in the column? Why why was your, your, your sense brought into question? Well, I guess, uh, you know, if you count a few thousand people saying I'm a moron, <laughs> um, that's, uh, although to be honest, I'm not sure there's there's anything all that new about that. I mean, part of being a columnist at the Wall Street Journal is a lot of people complain about what you write. But, um, you know, I wrote a column almost exactly a year ago uh, in which I called gold a pet rock, and a lot of people didn't like that. And they also, didn't. But also the market didn't like it. Um, almost, uh, I almost caught the bottom perfectly. Gold took off. It's up uh, roughly 20% so far this year. And I think it's really important when the price of an asset suggests that you're wrong that you reevaluate whether you're wrong. So that's that's what I tried to do. Yeah. I, I will say, and not to, to butter you up a little bit, because we appreciate you coming on the podcast and we'd like to have you come back here. But but most 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 folks when they get a, a call wrong and you know, to be clear, this is a short term call that you got wrong, but when they get a call wrong, usually they just run and hide and they kinda want everyone to forget they ever made the call. I, I'm impressed that you actually when it, it shows a certain confidence in your own abilities, Mr. Y, that you went ahead and you said, you know what, this was the call I made, this is where it went wrong, this is why I'm going to evaluate whether or not I actually was wrong. Uh, but of course, all that said, you ultimately conclude that you're not wrong. <laughs> why don't you tell us why, why well, you're not wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the one of the most important lessons in all of this, not just for me, but for anybody, and in fact, even if you think I'm still wrong, there's a really important question to ask, which is what does it mean to be wrong mm-hmm. as an investor? I mean, if you if you buy a stock or a bond or gold or any asset and it goes down in price or if you avoid it or sell it and it goes up in price, does that in and of itself make you wrong? I would argue no, probably not because first of all, you're, you can only be right or wrong over a given time period, which probably – 
at least for a long-term investor, should be measured over the course of more than a year. But more importantly, you're right or wrong depending on what your rationale for the decision was. And I think that the, the case, the historical case for gold as an inflation hedge and as a hedge against financial chaos is much weaker than a lot of people believe. That doesn't mean, of course, that the future will resemble the past. But if the future does resemble the past, I think a lot of people will be disappointed because the historical record for gold as an inflation hedge and a, and a protection against chaos is, is surprisingly weak. There was a you wrote a follow up also or a, a sidebar to your column uh, this weekend uh, quoting Benjamin Graham. I was wondering if you could sort of get into what he found about gold and you know and its use as an inflation hedge and you know in times of chaos and stuff like that. Yeah, Ben Graham, uh, who wrote the Intelligent Investor, the book after which my column is named, and and whom many people consider the greatest. Uh, financial analyst of the 20th century, in 1973 wrote that uh, gold was almost a complete failure over the preceding 30 or 40 years as an inflation hedge. And of course, he was basing it on publicly available data at the time. So, I mean, the long-term record of gold uh, as a store of value is nowhere near as good as people think it is unless you're measuring in horizons of say hundreds of years or more you know there was a there was a stat in your column this is friday's column that uh, that grocer liked so much he had it in his head he wanted it you wanted to mention it on friday's podcast and we've been talking about, about it all you've weekend you've been talking about it all weekend uh, well, it, it is interesting i will admit it's in, it is interesting but i want to know why it's interesting and i want to get you to talk. so this, this is the stat this is the stat you mentioned and i'm now quoting from your column, the same quantity of gold that a Roman centurion earned annually under Emperor Augustus, who ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD, very nice of you to get the years in there, mm-hmm. would cover one year's pay, roughly $46,500 to $65,000 for a U.S. Army captain today. That is a very interesting statistic. I'd love to know where you got it from. Yeah. But what does that tell me about gold? What does it? I mean, just what does it tell me about gold? Well, it is it I, good or bad? I think what it tells. Yeah, I think what it tells us about gold, Paul, is is why people think gold is an amazing inflation hedge. It's if your time horizon is long enough, and in this case, if it's approximately two thousand years long, um, gold is a remarkable store of value. It it holds its value constant very well over huge time horizons. Um, but however, over short time horizons, it doesn't do a very good job because the price is so volatile. Something that can you know, double in a year or two, uh, lose half its value in a matter of months, can be a pretty poor inflation hedge because you don't need to hedge inflation over the next like 2,000 years. You need to hedge it over the next like 20 years, and gold doesn't do a very good job of that, historically. In fact, it wasn't like gold, uh, you know, it, isn't it below where it was in the, uh, when you adjust for inflation in the mid-1980s? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gold is about 35% where it was in real terms, adjusted for inflation, in 1980. 
Um, it's still well below where it was uh, in 2008, uh, 2000, uh, when it peaked in 2011 as well. So, I, I think just one question I would pose to, I guess, all of you guys here. I, I mean, if gold isn't a good hedge against sort of chaos, uh, what is? And I mean, if, if there... Uh, if there, is there anything that is really a good hedge against chaos? I mean, I know those of us who who, who write and and sometimes uh, touch on gold, you get lots and lots of comments on these stories. Clearly, it's a very widely held belief that, you know, if the world's going to hell, you know, better stock up on gold. So, I, I mean, if someone who's posting on, on a comment on these stories, what can they look to if they can't look to gold? Yeah, well, it's a really complicated question, Ben, because, look, if... If your nation is coming to an end, then <laughs> it's probably a very good idea to take some gold or diamonds and like sew them into your coat or or <laughs> swallow them in one of those um, whatever you call those things that drug mules use a bolus or whatever that word is um, and like smuggle it on your body because you'll you'll have something that you can use wherever you're going um, at least if you're staying on planet Earth. But uh, in a lot of other forms of chaos, it's a little spotty. I mean, short of that, you know, frankly, at least until recently, um, the best hedge is, you know, treasuries are an amazing hedge against uh, market turmoil. And if you look at 2008, for example, um, if you owned almost anything except U.S. treasuries, you lost money in it. but if you want to hedge against inflation, equities do a pretty solid job of that, especially over long horizons. Um, and uh, your human capital also is a really good investment in the, you know, against inflation. Investing in yourself as part of hmm. your total personal finance portfolio is a really good idea. And I'm not saying nobody should ever own gold or that gold is completely useless. But expecting to get a positive return out of gold at the exact moment you most want it is a little bit of a riskier bet than a lot of people seem to think. So basically, uh, unless you're in a Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner skit, gold's probably not your best bet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 2,000-year-old man, he's good. Right. Um, his gold is worth what it was uh, when they when they first did that recording on like a stone <laughs> disc. Yeah. But – for other people, uh, it's a it's a much, I guess, dicier proposition yeah. than people think. Uh, I thought there was an interesting stat in your story where it was in two thousand eight. It was gold was thirty percent or below where it is today, and mm-hmm. in two thousand eleven, when the U.S. was uh, being downgraded, it was forty percent above where it's today. And I think yeah. that sort of sets up, I think, you know, how go- how hard it is to play gold. Yeah. Because, you know, the main factor in valuing it is not cash flows, because it doesn't have any, but it's rather sort of animal spirits. It's how, how is everybody else feeling about gold? And uh, it's easy to evaluate that at the moment, but it's not very easy, easy to predict where it's headed. Well, it would take a lot more than a twenty percent move in gold to prove Jason's Zweig a fool. So, well, we're, we're every every day is an ex, is, is is 
building more or less evidence in that, depending on your point of view. <laughs> All right. Jason Zweig, Intelligent Investor, thank you very much for coming in today. We are going to take a quick break, folks. And on the other side, we're going to come back and talk about the valuations game. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. And hey, folks, for more great podcasts out there from the Wall Street Journal, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. You can become a subscriber. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and also you can find us on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. And uh, the first question I want to ask uh, Ben and Grocer is, who got my Mel Brooks reference in that last segment? I definitely did not. I'm a little bit too young for that. Well, so. Yeah, yeah. Grocer, did you? I'm not, but I, I don't know if I was paying attention to you, which oh, isn't that, that, unu- that which isn't <laughs> really that unusual. That hurts, no, no, man. That really I, hurts. I, I'm just trying to save wow. face there. Yeah, I was glad that that's why I got it at least. You know, I know it's it's old people humor, but. Uh, it's good if you get it. All right. Uh, Aaron Kurloff is now with us in the studio. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, thanks. How yeah. are you? Uh, we're doing all right. And look, we wanted to have you in and Ben, too, especially because what we're going to talk about now is something you wrote about over the weekend, stock valuations. And on Friday, in case you missed it, folks, one of the oddest things that you will ever see in the stock market came basically- Well, you've never seen. Well, right, right. What you have you never seen. seen. You have never seen. Uh, came within about one point on the S&P 500 of being true, which is that on Friday, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note hit a record low, a post-constitutional convention low, right? 1790 to today, the yield had never been so low. And the S&P 500 came within one point of hitting an all-time high. Never have you had stocks and bonds rallying in such a way on the same exact day. It's like cats and dogs. Cats and dogs living together. together. (laughs) Okay, who got that reference in the room? All right, good Lord. Ben, did you get that reference? I got it, I got it. Okay. (laughs) Thank God. Um, So... The question then becomes, and this always happens, you know, like, which is the smarter market, the bond market or the stock well, the market? Thing- Who knows what's really going on? Which one is fundamentally valued here? Which one is, is riding crazy? Team? Well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, the other, this also gets to the point, and Aaron's, curl, Aaron's uh, story gotta, you know, gets into this, is that we've heard for how many years now, stock valuations are stretched. Stock valuations are stretched. They're above their historical you know, norms. This has been overall. And, you know, this year with, like, utilities, which have, you know, soared, they're, like, at their highest, you know, their valuations at their highest ever. You know, how much further can they run? I mean, this has been a constant sort of mantra. And when you take into account bond yields and where they are, they, maybe they're not that well, richly valued. Yeah, and Aaron, please jump in here because this was the point sure. of your story, you know. How do you work out what these valuations are right now and what they should be and what's res- you know respectable and normal? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny because if bonds are sen- and bonds and stocks are sending a mixed message, then that carries over into a mixed message you get when you use valuation metrics. Um, 
Uh, if you look at PE multiples, which a lot of people do, then valuations look stretched compared with their sort of past 10 years of uh, historical averages. When you consider these all-time low bond yields and, and do a little bit of math, they suggest PE ratios could be even higher. So um, basically, the methods compare the sort of future earnings on a stock uh, with the bond yield on some, you know, riskless asset, so a ten-year Treasury plus a premium for risk. And if you use a three point five percent, which is sort of the historical average risk premium, then what that says is the S and P five hundred P multiple should be about twenty and a half, and it's not. It's about eighteen. Um, and when you start applying it to sectors or individual individual companies, that carries through. And every time bond yields fall, it, it lowers the number in the in the denominator and dividing by a smaller number gives a bigger result. Um, so that's a, that's a message that people, some people are looking at and saying, well, maybe valuations aren't stretched. Maybe as long, in a time of ultra-low bond yields, this all makes sense. You know, I think one thing that's also interesting when you look at the fact that, that stocks have rallied and bonds have rallied is that, you know, for however many years, uh, you know, portfolio managers, advisors have been telling people that you should have a diversified portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And yeah, now both of those things are rallying and they're doing very well. But at the same time, does it kind of signal the end of, of, of bonds as a portfolio diversifier? Um, I actually have some stats here. These are some Morgan Stanley stats that are kind of interesting that um, if you get like a 10% correction in stocks, in order and, and you have sixty percent of your portfolio in stocks, in order to make that that ten percent be offset by the forty percent of uh, your portfolio that's in bonds, you need a a, a one point six percentage point rally on the the ten year treasury. So basically, the the ten year treasury yield is at one point four. It would have to to drop by one point six percentage points. So you end up getting a ten year treasury yield that's below zero. So basically, in order to make that 60-40 allocation work, you end up with negative treasury yields, which is something that seems pretty unlikely, which, uh, which I think is sort of an interesting, uh, so, sort of throws a wrench in the idea that, you know, you get one thing offsetting the other. No, I, I think one of the big questions, you know, going to Aaron is you look at where the stock market, I mean, we, as we said, we hit Friday, we're well above the record. If we can hold midday Monday, we're at 2040 uh, on the S&P right now. You know, how, how much? No, 2140. 2140. Yeah, thank yeah. you. How much further do, I mean, can, I mean, if valuations, are people, re, if people are recalculating valuations and the, these metrics for, you know, the stock market, how much further can stocks run? I mean, you know, or it, it, are we going to run out of steam? Because we've crossed that. We've been so many times before. We've this, you know, in the, in the past, you know, fifteen months, we've gotten up in the twenty one hundreds only to pull back. Yeah, um, I talked to several people today who said, "Yeah, I mean, this is a the, the, as long as bond yields persist this low." We can keep running, but, um, you know, they've been saying this is a market that's very range-bound, which is true. It's been trading in a fairly narrow range. Um, we've broken above that now, and the thought is if corporate earnings come in better than expected, that's all starting this week, um, then that could provide a catalyst to push um, higher than we are. The, the, the problem with the calculation is, that the ultra, is what the ultra-low bond yields mean. And if they mean that things aren't great economically and that corporate earnings will suffer, then that throws off the numerator of the equation. So uh, you divide by a small, you're dividing a smaller number into a smaller number. 
So there are limits to how high that math can push stocks, but uh, there are thoughts uh, from analysts and investors right now that if we see good earnings, that things could could break out to the upside. When you were going through this this article, when you're telling all the folks you're trying to, I, did anybody? Because and I I am not the most educated man on the planet. I will admit that. But when I look at all this and I see the stock market hitting record highs, bond yields hitting record lows. Uh, corporate earnings coming up, and they're not going to be good. Whatever you know, consensus they beat or miss by, they are not going to be good. I, I, Paul, Paul, when they're contracting by five point whatever six percent, right. I, I don't think you need any metric to say they're bad. <laughs> no, but my my point is, you know. It's it's interesting because you have people that just say, well, you know, this is the model, the valuation model, and if bonds are here, stocks should be here. Does anyone look at this and say, this is all kind of insane? Uh, These things should not be going on. They don't make sense. This is not a fundamentally sound market right now. Yes, and in fact, uh, one of uh, one of the quotes in my story from David Kotak essentially said, "We're just at a point that throws all these calculations off, so nobody really is sure yeah. what the more meaningful one is at this moment." Essentially, we have uh, unprecedented efforts by central banks to prop up economies and um, promote growth and inflation um, at a time when markets are still really high and, you know, the math goes all wonky when you start factoring in things like super-duper low yields or negative yields, which nobody really wants to deal with. But, um, uh, yeah, there, there's a fundamental question about the accuracy of any of these calculations at a time when people don't, you know, it's just there's no historical precedent. But the other yeah. question, too, is how much choice do investors have? I mean, that's I mean, yeah, I think yeah, investors I mean, I think investors all sort of have the same like that same reaction that there's none of this makes sense. But where do I go with my money? I need to earn a return. Yeah, um, a quote we've heard several times and haven't repeated recently is that the you know, best house in the bad neighborhood has sort of a, become a cliche for investors. U.S. stocks seem like a pretty good alternative. I mean, the dividend yield on the S&P 500 is 2.2 percent, and that's higher than the 10-year Treasury yield. And uh, I heard a stat today that 60 percent of the companies in the S&P have dividend yields higher than the 10-year Treasury. Um, so you know, for I would at least believe for the, that at least for the short term, that seems like a pretty. Decent it's not the yeah. best house on the block. It's getting to the point where it's like the only like <laughs> right, you know, right. house on the block. Um, how getting back to Ben's point though has how is that like how do you play? That? I mean, are portfolio managers talking to people about like how they you know sort of set up their portfolios, you know? I mean, you know, is that, is, are people starting to talk about getting rid of this sort of idea of diversification, the 60-40, or changing that around a bit? Yeah, everyone's just throwing in the towel. No more portfolio <laughs> management ever. <laughs> well, that's not <laughs> what I meant. <laughs> I meant just on that view. No, I, th- I think, it, no, it's a good point. It's a good point, and I think it, it, it does sort of, uh, it, it emphasizes that, that, 60-40 portfolio, while it, that is sort of like the traditional way of looking at diversification, it's not uh, uh, it's not the, it's, it's, those aren't the only two asset classes that there are and not the only two ways of investing and I think you you end up uh, uh, but you don't want people gold. Say, 
Well, <laughs> Jason, no pet gold. Rock. Pet rock. Pet rock. <laughs> uh, hundreds of commenters beg to disagree, though. So. <laughs> um, no, I, I think you do find people just pushing further and further afield, looking for 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 new opportunities, and that's yeah. how you, especially in in this this era of of central bank easing that we've had for so many years, you see people looking to like emerging market stocks and bonds, and just further and further out the risks. Uh, spectrum. Because, That's what I was going to say. Is the risk because, spectrum right? Because because what else are you going to do? Right. As that, they say, it's the, the the best house in a bad neighborhood. That, that, that's <laughs> that's that's how you end up in a world where people are talking about Bitcoin as being. You know the new gold, and right. Bitcoin is your hedge against chaos. And well, there, right. yeah, and there's a lot of concern. This is a long-term, low-return world. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a McKinsey study suggesting that we've been in a 50-year golden age that has now ended. And uh, if you want to get seven or eight percent, you're going to go way out the risk spectrum, yeah. and your real, the real sort of uh, safe, relatively safe asset return is going to be like four percent. And, and and this has serious consequences for pension funds. Yeah, your retirement. Yeah. I mean, like this is a serious. This this right. is a complete reevaluation of that. Yes, yeah, so a two hundred point base. According to this McKinsey study, a two hundred point basis uh, basis point drop in uh, returns over someone's career means you have to work something like seven years longer uh, to retire with the same income. Hmm. Or the, yeah, or do really or risky never. Re- yeah, yeah or, I mean, like yeah. honestly, like, I you know, I don't expect to ever really yeah. retire. Retire. I, I just think that's becoming a concept that's going to be foreign to people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a there's a lot of people concerned about this because yeah, uh, it's a, it does a, a lot of uh, if you if you go out long enough, it, it does a lot of uh, it makes a lot of changes in what people's expectations have been right. And also, I mean, like you talk about like state pension funds and stuff like that, where they're on the hook. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I think one thing that it's worth mentioning is that uh, yeah, maybe you are in a period of low returns or negative returns over a prolonged period of time, but it, it's not a place that we haven't been in before. I mean, I think people tend to lose sight of the fact that you know, more than thirty-five, forty years ago, the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, those were periods where you had bond yields rising uh, very sharply. You had stocks not doing that well. That was also a period of low returns and. Uh, I guess we managed to get to that golden age, no. but I, I think a lot of it's that that the, the people on Wall Street um, investors are really only able to sort of their, their their careers have only kind of spanned that period of golden years. So it's so it's something that that we're contending with for the first time, but it's not like it hasn't happened. <laughs> Wow, Ben Eisen, long view. Very nice, Ben. Well done. He didn't get the Mel Brooks. He doesn't remember Mel Brooks. He doesn't remember Mel Brooks, but he gets the long term. Nice. I, 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 well I appreciate Ben right now because yeah, I, I, I was going back to my desk. Ben, very in nice. Tears. Very nice. All right, listen, we're going we're gonna to go on Ben's note because that was uh, it's a beautiful note. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. You will catch us later this week without a doubt. We'll catch up with you then. Talk to you then, too. All right, uh, take care. Bye. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.